Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at it. Help us to see what you would want us to see from this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. First, first, yeah. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. I want to go back and read from the first verse of this chapter, even, uh, even though we've covered it. Uh, we covered the first uh, four verses already, but I want to read those to get our context in this section. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes within your locks. Your hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount, Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which come up from the washing, whereof everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a thread of scarlet, and your speech is comely. Your temples are like pieces of pomegranate within your locks. Your neck is like the Tower of David, divided, built, built for the armory, whereupon hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like young rose that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Until the daybreak, until the shadows flee away, I will get, get me to the mountains of myrrh, to the hills of frankincense. You are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. All right, those first four verses we're talking about how he sees her and how beautiful she is. We talked all about that. So if you need to re remind yourself on that one, go back to last week's uh, message online. Uh, so verse 5 and 6, I'm not going to dwell on those ones so much, but he's talking about enjoying, enjoying their, night, their nightly time. And that's where I'll leave, especially with so many young, young people here, enjoy, enjoying their night, <laughs> their night together. All right. Uh, but I really wanted to look at verse 7. You are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. And I think about this. You know that God sees us this way. You are all fair, which literally is talking about the beauty that he sees in us. God sees us as beautiful. We're his bride, and he sees us as beautiful. And, you know, I, I think about this, you know, um, when there's a marriage out, that, you know, that happens... The bride gets to be the center of the attention for a good part of that, <laughs> that message. She comes down the aisle, everybody looks at her, and the groom is down at the bottom, and he is usually flabbergasted at how beautiful his wife looks for that event. You know, and I think about Jesus seeing us in that way. You know, just looking up there, and he says, that's my perfect bride. That's, that's, that's my beauty coming down there. And even beyond just beauty, he says, without spot. You know, if we could really understand that God sees us without spot, it would really change the way we see ourselves and the way we see other Christians and other people. You know, not that other people that aren't Christians are seen without spot, but do we start seeing people the way God sees people? God looks at the world and he loves the world. Enough to send Jesus to die for the world. Now that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved just because Jesus died for sin, but you know, he sees people worth dying for, even when we were his enemies. And when we become his children and his bride, he sees us as perfect. And we've talked about this. Why does he sees us, see us as perfect? Because he sees us as we are going to be. All right? He is already seeing us in the millennial kingdom when we are glorified and perfect. You know, and that's how he deals with us. He deals with us in what he knows we will be. Now, that doesn't mean he's not helping us learn to grow and to, and to mature and be sanctified. But he also deals with us as what we will be. No spot. No spot. And I've heard people tell me, well, I just can't forgive myself. And they may even be even more bold. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And that, to me, is such an arrogant statement. You know, God can forgive me, but I, I have higher standards than God. I can't forgive myself. And I know they don't see it that way, but that's really what they are saying when they, when they say, you know, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. They're saying my standards are higher than God's standards. And that's a sad statement. You know, the groom here representing Jesus sees his bride and says, my perfect spouse. Why? Because we're in his righteousness. The father looks at us and says, this child is perfect. You know, and he treats us that way. 
you know, otherwise we wouldn't get any blessings at all because he would look at our, our evilness and our, and our problems. And yet he looks at us and says, this is perfect. You know, we need to really be able to look at ourselves and say, God, you say I'm perfect. Help me to believe that. And that's someplace where we need to. And we sing several songs because I like these songs that talk about God, help me see myself. We sang, we've sang the song, You Say, and it says, you know, you know when I feel unloved, you, you say I'm loved. When I feel no strength, you're holding me. And all these different verses that it has in it. Uh, you know, so many times we go, God, I don't feel what you're saying I am. We need to accept that what he says is true no matter what I feel. And that's important. God, you say it. I'm going to believe it. Because I believe it, I'm going to put my faith in it. And eventually, the feelings will fall, fall behind. Because feelings lie to us oftentimes. Not 100%, but most of the time. When we act in our feelings, we're going to mess up. We're going to do stupid things. We're going to do really dumb things. Uh, we feel in love, and all of a sudden, that person is, is trustworthy, and, you know, and, we, and we make all kinds. This person, I feel like they don't like me, and I start reacting to them under my feelings that they don't like me, and I might be totally wrong. They might not like me. They might like me, and, they, and I'm just misinterpreting them. Our feelings drive mistakes so often. We need to put ourselves in truth. What is truth? What the Word of God says. And there's times when we just need to make that stance. I am going to stand on God's Word. And as they said you know, last night, sometimes we just act. You don't feel it, you don't know it, but you just act. God says to do it, you start doing it. And your feelings usually come, a, come, a, come along. Uh, you know, people say, you know, just do it, and, you know, fake the feelings until they're there. And that is a real true statement sometimes. You know, when you're married, you're not always feeling in love with that person. There's times when it is very difficult to, you know, you're going, well, I don't even know why we're living together because I don't even like this person anymore. Uh, you know, so we want to be very careful about that because, you know, our feelings tell me, you know, my, my vows were worthless, just get out of this relationship because I no longer feel it. And we forget so often that we're not here to feel good. We're not here to feel loved even. We're here to serve God. And feelings are irrelevant when it comes down to it. Our feelings, you know, Paul says we're to work for God because our gifts are in heaven. You know, no matter what happens on this earth, God blesses us. Don't get me wrong. I, I feel extremely blessed for being a Christian, but that doesn't mean everything's perfect all the time. And I always feel good and I always feel encouraged, but I do put my faith in God and saying, God, don't understand some of what's going on, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. And I know that you're true, so I'll eventually get rewarded for this, even if it's in heaven. Because you know, that was what Paul said. You know, I thank God for these light afflictions in this world because they are nothing in compare, when compared to heaven. And he looks to heaven. And Paul's light conflict, uh, afflictions that we've talked about, uh, shipwrecked several times, gone hungry, beaten everywhere he goes, chased out of town, threatened with death, thrown into jail everywhere, you know, most everywhere he goes. And, you know, we look at that and say, you know, those are light. <laughs> those are your light afflictions, Paul? What would you consider heavy? And from his mindset, nothing was because he was looking and saying, all I've got to do is live on this world, endure this world, even if I have to endure this world for my entire lifetime, what is that compared to heaven? When we will have trillions, quadrillions of years of uh, blessing and peace. And when we've been out there so long, we look back to this world and say, I don't even remember that world it was so long ago. And this is the way we need to look at one another and ourselves especially. God sees us as perfect. How will it change the way we deal with one another if we start thinking God sees you as perfect I need to even begin to understand that and, and see where it's going on verse 8 come with me from Lebanon my spouse with me from Lebanon look from the top of Amana and from the top of Shinar and Hermon from, and from the lion's dens and from the mountains of the leopards you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart. 
with one of your eyes, with the chain of your neck. How, far, how fair is my love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is your love than wine and the smell of, you, of your ointments than all, all spices? The, your lips, O oh my spouse, drop as honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the smell of your garment is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are in an orchard, are an orchard of pomegranates and pleasant fruits, camphor and spikenard. Spikenard and saffron and camias and cinnamon and all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloe. With all the chief spices, a fountain, a garden, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. And here he's continuing this speech to his, to his new bride. Come with me from Lebanon. And it appears that she is from that area of Lebanon because he keeps referring to Lebanon when he talks about her. Uh, Come from Lebanon, my spouse, and with me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amana and Shinar. And Shinar is another name, is the name for Mount Hermon. So he repeats this. We're going to go to Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon in Israel is one of the tallest peaks in Israel. And you can see most of the land from there. It was probably one of the places where Abraham walked when God says, look around and see all the land. Everywhere you're going to go is yours. So he would have been on top of one of these big peaks and saying, and God saying, look, look around you. This land is all yours. Everywhere that your foot has touched. And he's saying, come and look. Come and look from this high place and see, see that God is good. You know, how many times do we change our focus and we somehow forget that God is good? And we need to keep this in mind. When things go bad, God is good all the time. He's promised that all things work together for good. And he says that, I, that he's in control. You know, and too often, we go by what we see and say, God, this is terrible. It's awful. I don't know how this can be for good. And I understand that. You know, and I told you, sometimes my comment to God is, God, I don't know how this can be good. But I trust that you're still in control and that you know what you're doing. Why? Because he is. <laughs> and when you can do that, it's a great advantage to be able to look up and say, God, I don't, I don't understand this, but you do. And that gives me so much comfort. God, you're in control. You haven't lost your marbles. You haven't gone on vacation. You haven't, haven't forgotten and left me. I'm, I'm not, you, know, you haven't uh, left me to, to things that you don't know about. So it is very important for us to be able to say, God, yes, I am trusting you. You know, and we don't get to live on a mountaintop with God all the time. Those mountaintop experiences are great when we're feeling good and we love God and everything's great and it's easy to worship God and we're having fun with God. But eventually we've got to come down into the world and the one thing the world does is irritate us. And it's right that it does in many cases because the world is so opposite of what God does. When you're dealing with people that have no love and they're actively trying to get people mad at them and actively trying to irritate people. You have people purposely sinning and trying to entice you into sin. It's a tough world to be in. And then we feed it ourselves by, by the books we read and the music we listen to and the, and the shows we watch and all of this. And we feed the negative already and that makes it even harder for us because we're already poisoning our thought processes and setting ourselves up for failure. And I'm not saying don't listen to anything and don't watch any movie, but be very careful what you're listening to and how you're following it and get into God's word. Spend time in God's word every day. And we, you know, we encourage everybody, read the Bible through in a year. Spend that time reading his word. Spend that time worshiping God each day, praying to him, praying for the revival that we're encouraging everybody to pray for, reaching out to God and saying, God, I want what you want. Get our mindset to want what God, what God wants. Now, God gets grieved with sin. Don't get us wrong. He loves everybody. He follows everybody. You know, he wants people to get saved, and he gets grieved with sin, and it tells us that all through the Scripture. And when, he, when his patience runs out, he judges sin. And it's not wrong to be somewhat grieved by sin, but don't lose your joy over of your salvation over it. 
because this world is hard to live in. It really is hard to live in because we are not citizens of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven and we are going to have an entirely different attitude about everything in this world that the world has. We are at odds with the world on everything we do and you know, it is gonna to be tough. You know, we look at what the world does and says, that's sin, they're going, well, you're just so judgmental. No, I'm just telling you what you're doing is sin. I don't judge you at all. What you're doing is wrong and God's gonna judge you. But I'm just telling you, he calls it sin. And a lot of people, once you call it sin, they feel like they're judged. Why? Because the world looks at themselves and says, I am what I do, all right? I am a lesbian. I'm not a person that's sinning, has the sin of homosexuality. I am a thief. I'm not somebody who is, who is stealing. The world internalizes who, what they are and their actions and becomes, or says they have become what they are. And they really don't understand us as Christians to say, no, you're a special creation of God who is sinning. And we need, to, we need to really get that into our mind that that person is loved by God. They're created in the image of God and special. You know, and God says, stand up here. Look, look around. See what was going on. And we need to really get to that point. God, yes, help me see things through your eyes. The love of the people. Love for those people in spite of what they do. In spite of anything they do, just loving them. You know, not, not excusing their sin. We don't want to excuse sin, and that's not our job to excuse sin. Sin is sin. But we're to love that person because God loved them enough to die for them. And he wants to come in and change them because when he comes in, he clothes us with righteousness, but that's not where it stops. He comes in and he changes us from the inside out. It's not me beating my flesh into submission and saying, okay, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be good, I'm going to, oops, I fell again. Okay, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be good, nope, I fell again. God says, I'm coming inside, I'm going to crucify the flesh, and I'm going to change you from the inside out. And then when you fail, it's not your fault anyway, because he's changing us, he's crucifying that flesh. And eventually we look back and say, wow, I haven't had a problem with this area anymore, and I'm not having a problem with this area anymore. Thank you, God, you've crucified that area of my life. Be very careful that you don't guard that area that's been crucified because that crucified flesh likes to come back up out of the grave and off the cross and try to come back with a vengeance if we're not careful. So make sure it stays on the cross. But you know, he's saying, look around you. Look around at all that God's doing. You know, and the one thing that's so special is God provides blessings. I love that God gives great blessings blessings to us and you know I look around so much and I and I'm looking at the blessings that he's given me and I'm going wow God you're so special you're so great and if we're concentrating on his blessings and his and his bounty that he has given us we don't recognize all the things that we supposedly don't have you know the world will want us to concentrate on all the stuff we don't have and don't and usually don't need and we have an entire advertising agency in this, in this world that's all geared toward teaching us that we need things that we don't need and creating a want and a desire and a, and a coveting for things that we didn't, didn't know we need. Uh, you know, just little things like pancake flippers where the pan turns over itself so you can flip the whole pan because the pancake's hard to turn. You know, and it's funny, if you watch those commercials, these people are struggling with their spatula and smashing that pancake all over the place and it's like, well, if you let it cook just a little longer, you wouldn't have had a problem with it. You know, but, you know, but they're actively, you can all, we can all pick. I just love that one because that one was so stupid to me. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to turn on an entire pan over instead of, a pan, you know, instead of the pancake. You know? uh, but you know, there's plenty of things out there. We didn't know we were missing it until they advertised to us. You know, parallel parking is so hard that you've got to have a car that parallel parks for you. Uh, you know, we're, we're so distracted as drivers, we have to have cars that warn us if we're gonna pull into somebody or brake for us automatically. Uh, so we wanna be, you know, but we have all these things that we didn't know we needed until we were told we needed it. And I'm being silly on those ones, but we can literally be Satan coming in and saying, you know, you're not loved enough, you need to go find somebody who's gonna love you. You know, your, your, your spouse isn't good enough for you, go find somebody who loves you because they're not, they're not meeting your need. He does, he does a great job trying to advertise to us and make us 
covet and want things we're not supposed to have. And we need to be very careful of obeying God and following after him and not filling our mind with a bunch of garbage. And it really is, in our day and age, easy to get filled with garbage. When the world is telling you, well, everybody's doing it. And everybody is, who's lived with any parent knows that they will always come back, well, if everybody jumped off the cliff, would you? The answer for most people is yes. <laughs> if everybody else was jumping off the cliff, I'd be the lemon and jump off with them. Because I'm, most people will do that. You know, now, we really would probably wouldn't jump off the cliff literally, but we jump off cliffs all the time because everybody's doing it. You know, into sin, into fornication, into adultery, into lying, you know, not being truthful. You know, in our generation, not being truthful is a really big problem that we have. As long as I can get myself out of trouble by perception, it's okay to say or do whatever I can to stay out of trouble. God calls it lying. Whether you say that, you know, if, even if you don't fully say something that's contrary, he says, you didn't speak what you know, you're lied. And we need to say, God, what is it you expect? Our standard as Christians needs to be so much higher than the world's that it stands out, almost like a sore thumb. Well, you Christians are really weird. How can, how can you be doing that? How can, you, how can you be that honest? How can, you know, and the world doesn't understand it. Because the secondary problem is, is when we fall as a Christian, the name of Christ suffers. Because people are watching us and going, well, I thought you Christians were all supposed to be so good and so perfect. You know, and it's really funny that the world sets us at a higher standard than we as Christians set ourselves up. Because we as Christians go, well, God's going to forgive me. I can go out and do whatever I want. And there's a the truth in that. God's going to forgive you. But the testimony that we've damaged takes a big hit when we disobey God. And it's something that is really critical for us to understand. Will God forgive us as a Christian? Absolutely, he'll forgive us. There's going to be consequences, and sometimes we forget about the consequences that are going to come. But, you know, we need to be able to understand it's not just me who's affected. All right, God's forgiven me, and I can suffer the consequences. But one of those consequences is that Jesus, the testimony of Christ is drugged through the mud. Will he make it good? Absolutely, he promises all things work together for good. But there's somebody that has been affected that may not become a Christian for a period of time because of us dragging the testimony of Christ through the mud. And that will be an effect on us when we stand before the beam of seat of Christ as a Christian. And he goes, you know, you, you damage these people. Maybe you damaged them so much that they don't even become a Christian because of our disobedience. The good news is it gets burnt up and disappears. And he only gives us the rewards that, we're, that are due us. But he will say... This is the harm that was done. And he'll show us at times the gifts that we weren't. I really do believe that that Bema seed, he's going to show us the things. He'll, he'll say, here's your reward, and over there is what you lost. If you had just done the things I wanted you to do, here's the reward you would have had. We're going to be happy to have a reward. And he's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes. But when we see the small handful or even a big bag for some of us, you know, of reward, and we look over at the mounds of stuff, because every one of us have a problem. We haven't obeyed God fully. But he's going to say, welcome into the kingdom, and hopefully we're going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. That is what I want to hear. My greatest fear is to, to step away from God and not be worthy of the calling. And that's something I've seen so many times over the years. I've seen so many people walking with God, walking with God, walking with God, and then all of a sudden falling away, you know, for whatever reason. Part of it is I think they just get confident, you know, I haven't, I haven't had this sin for a long time. I, I can get away with it, and then they get knocked for a loop when they take that guard off their heart. Never, ever take the guard off your word. There's no sin in your life that is so far removed from you that it can, cannot come back. And it's very important for us to understand that. Well, I haven't had a drink for 40 years. <laughs> and if you... Take your guard off it and you take that first drink one day because you're in a bad mood or sad or whatever. You know, saying, well, I, I need this one just because. And then you find yourself right back where you started at. You know, God, I am really, and this is what I've talked about all the time with all these different leaders who get caught up in, in churches with a, adultery. I can guarantee that every one of them have said in their lifetime, I will never commit adultery. I'll never be unfaithful to my wife. And under the right circumstances, with no guard on their heart, they end up wrapped up in adultery. 
this is a very easy thing to happen. You and your wife are having a hard time. You feel like she doesn't love you and somebody just starts paying attention to you and makes you feel good. And neither one of you have any bad intentions, but it feels good to be appreciated. And you're going, my wife hasn't appreciated me for, for months or weeks or, or years you know, or decades. You know, I haven't felt appreciated. And then somebody comes along and just appreciates you. And it just builds upon itself and end up you're in, you're in an affair. It's not hard to have it happen, and I've seen it, you know, I've seen it, you know, where somebody just is nice, you know, when I'm in a bad spot in my marriage and somebody's just nice to me and, you know, and you just go, hmm. <laughs> and if you're, if you're not guarding those initial thoughts, it can lead down a path that's, that's wrong. And I've never followed it, but I, I understand how it comes. Because I've seen it. Wow, that person's really nice. They're, they're kind to me. Nope, turn away. <laughs> don't, don't go anywhere near that person. <laughs> Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife when she tried to drag him into, into adultery. You know, uh, and we see all through the scriptures says, flee fornication. You know, God, God has never said, go battle it. He says, run from it. That's one, that's one sin he says, run from. And because it is so insidious and so easy to you know, get into. And this verse is all about the love God has for us. Verse 9, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one of your eyes, with the chain of your neck. And I love this word for ravish. It means to have your heart beat faster. You know, and everyone who's ever been in love knows exactly what this feeling is. You see that person come and everything just jumps. You, know, you feel yourself quicken. You, you just, wow, here, 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 here they come. Here's this person that I really love. And, you know, I, I think about this. This is Jesus talking about his bride. You have ravished my heart. You make my heart quicken and beat quicker. Do we really think of ourselves as that way being seen by God? That he sees us and he gets excited by seeing us? You know, I've not really thought about it that, that way very much. That in love attitude of, wow, here they are. I know that God loves us, but this verse has just jumped out at me as I was reading it. Ravished. And he repeats it twice in this section. You have ravished my heart, my, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eye. You know, you've been there, done that, seen that person, then you just, you, they, they look your way and you just melt. You know, anybody who's been married hopefully has had that experience with that person. You know, where you just look and you're just, ah, oh, look at that look. And you just melt in your attention to them and you're just ready to pay attention, you know, just, okay, what, what else is coming? What, or, or, you, or you're so much in love that you see that person and it's, all right, I, I, I still love this person. You know, they're beautiful, they're, you know. And, you know, the one thing I've found oftentimes is beauty beauty for people is not necessarily what they think about themselves, it is what the person who looks at them sees. And I do know, you know, that I've seen many women who don't believe that they're beautiful and yet their husband will tell them they're beautiful and, they're, and yet they won't believe it. You know, and it really doesn't matter if they're beautiful by whatever the world standard is, is are you beautiful to the person who's looking at you and saying you're beautiful? You know, Jesus says we're beautiful. It doesn't matter what we think about ourselves. He says we're beautiful and we need to accept that he's speaking the truth. Because if we start saying, okay, God, you see me as beautiful? All right, help, help me to, even if it's help me to believe it myself, God, you see me as beautiful, help me to believe it. Because if we don't see ourselves as beautiful, we're always going to be trying to improve. And God's saying, you're there. Quit trying to make yourself and this is where we see in our, in our fleshly desires, it's the man trying to bulk up and get in shape in the, in the, in the uh, gym so he has his, his, you know, his um, uh, washboard abs and his muscles on him so he looks, you know, looks good. The, the, the woman who's trying to lose weight you know, so that she will be as skinny as a rail at, and uh, you know, paint up with all kinds of makeup and everything so that she is attractive to everybody, you know, but, you know, we do the same things as Christians. God, just let me do enough good works and I'm going to be beautiful to you. 
I will, you know, just let me do enough good so that I'll be beautiful to you. And, and when we end up falling flat on our face and he said, I'm picking you up and you're coming with me. And we're going, oh, I messed up. I'm not beautiful. And he's saying, you're beautiful, except that he sees us different than we see ourselves. Do we mess up? Absolutely. Does God reject us when we ain't mess up? Nope. He says, confess your sins, repent, and he brings us back into fellowship. Doesn't mean there's no consequence for it, but he says, I'm bringing you back into fellowship because I love you and you are beautiful. And we need to really start understanding that. You know, how does he see it? It says here, he's ravished by us. Ravished by us. One look with, with each chain on your neck, that decor, decorative chains. Verse 10, how fair is my love, my sister, my spirit. How much better than love is your love than wine and the smell of your ointments than all spices. And again, he's saying how fair, how beautiful is his bride. So we have this big problem coming out. And again, it comes down to, am I building my life on truth and just saying, God, you are true? Or am I building my life on feelings? And if we're trying to drive our life on feelings, we're in trouble. We're in trouble because we're never going to always feel good. And there are times when we just say, God, I don't even feel nothing. <laughs> I don't even feel nothing. God says, don't worry about it. Just be obedient to truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Okay, God, I'm going to follow that way. You're the way. You're the truth. I'm going to follow you. And he will bring us blessings. In the long run, again, I've said this so many times. What is, it, what is really bad if we spend, let's say we lived a long time, 500 years. And every day of that 500 years was miserable and under persecution, but we loved God with all our hearts and we were doing the best we can with what we've got. What would 500 years be when we get to heaven? And we've been in heaven, you know, the songs all say 10,000 years because when they were written 10,000 years, you know, 10,000 was a big number. You know, we've been there for 10 quadrillion years <laughs> or 10 Unidesi years, which is a bigger number than anybody, 52 zeros after the, after the number. We've been there 10 of those, 10. What will 500 years be in our mindset? You know, and we need to get that in, in, in our mind. God has promised an eternity of blessing and happiness with no tears, no fears, no trouble. What is any time on earth that we spend in suffering going to be compared to that? And that's what Paul says. These little things, these little problems that I have are nothing when compared to heaven. Our job is to keep comparing to heaven. God, there, there's blessing coming. There's blessing coming. Okay, God, you know, this life is really miserable right now, but, you know, there's blessing coming. The good news is God doesn't give us an entire life of misery if we keep focused on him. All right? We can make ourselves miserable. Have you ever made yourself miserable thinking about something that was bad or that you thought would be bad or... You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be seeing this person and I can't stand this person and I'm going to just make myself miserable for four days thinking about when I'm going to see them next. And then everything seems bad for that four days because we've been making ourselves miserable. And we miss all the blessings that were coming along because we are just making, our, we are making ourselves miserable. And usually that's what we do. We make ourselves miserable instead of counting the good things that God has done for us. You know, and looking at the blessings. And, you know, here he's saying, my love ravishes my heart. And then he says, your love is better than wine and the smell of your ointments than all spices. So he says, I'm just being, enjoying being with you. You know, and, you know, just being with that person. And I can't imagine that God sees us that way. You know, I just... It's hard for me to even picture him being just, I just love being with you. Because I look at it, and I've said this before, Jesus, God created us human beings. We sinned. Jesus died for us. We get everything. We get salvation. We get eternal life. We get all the blessings and riches of heaven. And what does he get? He gets us. And yet we look at this, and he says, you are so precious that I love being around you. I love, you know, I look at something like this, and it just blows my mind. God, you got me, and you desire me that much? And I know who I am and what I do and all of that, and I'm going, God, I don't understand this. I, I have as much trouble as everybody else. I've seen myself as perfect like God sees because I can't, 
you know, he sees something we don't see, and he sees it as so special and loving. And, and he goes, I got you. You know, we look at him and go, you got me? And he's going, yeah, I got you. You're, you're my special, special possession. You know, he looks at us in a totally different way than we see it. You know, because we look at it and say, man, I, I mess up so often. And God, you, you know, I don't know how you could even, even want to be in my presence. Because you know, if, if, if I was looking from your place, I wouldn't want to have me. And yet he says... You ravished my heart. You're special. Your love is special. You know, your, your, your ointments and your smell is, is precious. You know, and, uh, and I can remember when I first got married and I learned the smell of my wife, not just the perfumed smell, but the smell of my wife. You know, where I could get to the place where I could pick her out, you know, even in the dark, I'd have been able to pick her out because I knew the smell. And here he's saying, even that smell that we have, whatever that smell is, he knows it and desires it. This, this verse excites me about it. It's, it's built on the whole personal relationship, but this is Jesus' attitude toward us. He says, your lips, O my spouse, drop with as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The smell of your garments is like the smell of Lebanon. And here he's talking about the speech. He says that our speech is full of honey and milk. It builds up. It edifies. It's desirous. You know, is that the way we talk to one another? You know, it's kind of the idea you know, of pillow talk. You know, you've had your fun, and now you're just talking kindly to each other. And here he's saying, this is, your, this is what I'm hearing. I love you, and you're, and you're speaking back. Your, your speech is sweet. It's encouraging. It's also the way we're to speak to one another, sweet edification, building up. You know, and we need to really start looking at this. Our speech to one another as Christians needs to be edifying and building up, not tearing down. You know, I have a great time when I met with the pastors, and it's great to be able to say, so many people in my church are growing. It's phenomenal to watch them grow. You know, and it's wonderful to watch how God is working it, and, and this is how God talks, speaks of us. He sees the positive in us. He's looking at the grade and he says, I just want to talk to you, your edification and your, and your sweetness of your, of your voice. And he says, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring that is shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates and pleasant fruits, camphor and spikenard. Spikenard and saffron, camaras and cinnamon and all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a garden, a, a fountain of garden, a well of living waters, a stream from Mount Lebanon. And here he's talking about an enclosed garden, the intimacy that belongs to the marriage bed. And you know, this is why it's so critical even in marriage that people say, it's shut off. It's just me and my spouse. Uh, and it's critical. And this concludes, don't flirt with other people, don't, you know, don't make it even a plain flirting, because that plain flirting can get you in trouble. Because you may just play and flirt with somebody whose needs are very deep, and you can end up finding yourself in a position that you don't want to be in. Flirting is a dangerous place if you're married. If you're single and trying to attract somebody, flirting's not a bad deal, but make sure in this day and age that you're even careful there. Because who knows where that flirting is going to go in our day and age where everybody expects just you know, going out on a date and jumping in bed at the end of the, of, of the date. You would need to be very careful. An enclosed garden, our relationship is special and it's gated off and walled off. And he says, you are my, that special. The bride of Christ is walled off. He says, I'm not having this relationship with the world. You know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, everybody's saved because of Jesus' sacrifice. No, everybody's sins are forgiven because of his sacrifice, but not everybody's saved. That takes coming into a relationship with him because at the white throne judgment, people are going to stand before God in their own righteousness. They're going to be judged because they're not perfect. And they're going to go, nope, you're, you're wearing your sin. If you remember the parable of the, of the wedding feast where, no, where all the invited guests didn't come, and they came in, and the king came in, and he found this man that did not have the wedding garment on. He goes, where's your wedding garment? Didn't you give one? Uh, and he goes, well, no, I thought it was okay. And he says, cast him out into outer darkness. 
the ultimate penalty for, sin, for, the, for disobedience is that you're not perfect. Our own righteousness in Isaiah says, is filthy rags. At the white throne judgment, people are going to be presented in filthy rags trying to say, God, I deserve to come into, the, into your kingdom. It's the ultimate lie that Satan has told people over the years. If you're just good enough, your good outweighs your bad, you're going to be okay before God. They're going to stand before God in filthy rags, and God's going to, and all of a sudden they're going to look down and see what their, what their righteousness looks like, because at that time they'll see it. And they're going, uh, <laughs> I guess I'm not good enough to go to heaven. And it is too late at that point. They're going to be condemned to, to eternity in the lake of fire. We stand before God, not in our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. An enclosed garden and says, I've got a relationship. I've clothed you. I've made you special. Welcome. You know, we need to really understand that I'm not standing before God in my own righteousness. I'm standing in his righteousness. And that means he sees us equally. You know, which is the good news. When we stand before him at the Bema seat, we're going to be dressed right. We're going to be dressed in the, right, the righteousness of Christ. And he's going to say, at least we get to heaven. At least we get into heaven. We may not have done anything, but we will get to heaven because of his righteousness. Because I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm glad I accept your gift. Come into my life and fill me. He says, here I am. Here's your, here's your new clothes. Here's your new set of clothes to stand before the Father. And it says, your plants are an orchard of pomegranate with pleasant fruits, camphor, spikenards, spikenard and saffron, camelus, cinnamon, and all the trees of frankincense and myrrh and aloes and all the chief spices. That was the list of the most precious spices. God compares us to the most precious things out there. Or this is what Solomon says, you know, I'm placing you up there. You didn't place her up with gold and silver, which is, you know, which was which was had its value and, and especially in silver in Solomon's day was worthless. He said it was a, as plentiful as the sand. Silver was worthless. He goes, I'm putting you up there with the most precious spices. You know, all these beautiful spices that have a fragrance that are very valuable in their in their day and age is this is how much value I place on you. Do we really understand the value God places on us? Probably not. You know, because even, even when I sit there and try to understand God's value, I still find out later on that I, no matter what I thought he valued me, he's even further, further off than I, than I thought. And this is the thing I'm learning. The more I get to know God, the more I realize I don't know God. Because I draw closer and think, okay, I got it now. I get to know, I get to know who God is. And God says, oh, no, you don't even, you, you're, you're, you're still playing in the kiddie pool. You're not, even, you're not even out in the ocean. You're still playing in the kiddie pool about my knowledge. And I get a little deeper in, and he goes, oh, no, you're still not there. You're still playing in the kiddie pool because you haven't even made it to the big pool yet, much less the ocean, because God is infinite. We will never know his love. We will never know his mercy. We will never know his grace because of the in infinite nature of all of those things. We can never know him completely. We will be spending eternity getting to know God. And even when we've been here, however big a number you can picture in heaven, we still won't know everything there is to know about God because he's infinite. And that's after spending billions, trillions, quadrillions, you know, pentillion years, you know, with him, we will still only be beginning to know him because of his in infinite nature. I can't even fathom what that means. I'm beginning to. 48 years of walking with God, and it's just beginning to really understand, God, you are so much more than anything I can comprehend. You are more merciful than I can understand. And I understand his mercy a lot more today than I did 48 years ago. God, you are so, so gracious, I can't even begin to understand. It. And I know his grace better today than I did 48 years ago. God, you love so much more. You, know, you, pick, your, you pick any part of what you want to talk about, God. And he is bigger than anything we can imagine. And so much bigger that we'll never understand him because he's infinite in every one of his attributes. And he compares us to the most treasured thing that Solomon can pick up. And it says, all these spices, you're better than all of them. Because he's looking at the garden. <laughs> so he uses spices. And he says, a fountain of gardens is a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. A fountain in the garden and of living water. 
Who is the living water? Jesus himself. Jesus indwells us and out of us flows living water. You know, and what is, it, what is it that draws the world to Christ? Is that living water they see that is flowing out of God's people. Do we do it perfectly? No. But they should be able to see that they're loved. You know, when we watched God's Not Dead 3, there was that one incident where the, the girl comes to the pastor and says, you know, we really understand what the church is against, but what is the church for? And the Christian church is doing a great job of talking about all the things we're against. But the grace and mercy of God and his salvation is really suffering. And we need to be able to bring those out. God loves people. Yes, he knows they're sinners. Yes, he knows that they're evil. But too many times in the church, we have this desire of, well, you know, if I can get this person good enough, then I'll give them the gospel. Doesn't work that way. God says, I want the person where they're at to confess their sin, turn to me, and he says, I will clean them. I will clean them. And yet sometimes we'll look, oh God, that person is just too bad. There's no way they're going to listen. You know, some of the people have had the greatest success are those that I would have said, I'm, you know, this person is too bad. You know, you want me to talk to that biker over there? He looks like he's ready to tear me limb from limb. And you talk to him and they're just so sweet and, and melt because somebody desired to talk to them about God. Not every one of them. You know, God, you know, you want me to talk to that drunk? And God says, yeah. You know, and it's been said over and over, these people that minister to the drunks will tell you that these guys sober up instantly when they accept Christ. It's just like God overwhelms them and bang. There's a new feeling because God's power comes upon them. We need to be very careful that we say that person is just too far gone. God doesn't see anybody as too far gone. They're not too far gone until the moment they die in their sin. Up to that point, they're not too far gone. It doesn't matter how far down the road they are. They are not too far gone for God to love them. And sometimes those ones that we think are too far gone are actually easier to reach because they know that they're far, really far gone and a rejected God. And to have somebody tell, you, tell them that God loves them. You know, and I've heard it so much time, there's no way God can love me. God loves you. Well, I'm really bad. God loves you. You know, I think back to the cross and the switchblade when, when David uh, Wilkerson told Nikki Cruz, the really bad gangster, God loves you. And at one point, Nikki says, quit telling me that because I can't stand hearing it. And he goes, I'm going to cut you up into however many pieces. And David Wilkerson said, and every one of the pieces is going to say, God loves you. you know, why? Because people need to hear that. And it irritates some people to hear that God loves them because they don't believe it. We need to show them that God loves them. We need to be kind to them and show God's love toward them. Does that mean we accept their, their sin and everything? Absolutely not. But God still loves them and wants to come into their heart and celebrate with them. And he says, we are, my daughter, my, my spouse, my sister, my spouse, you are a fountain with living water. And fountain refers to the whole, the whole thing of the sexual union on it as well. But he says, you're also living water. Out of him flows living water. Jesus flows out of them. And wake, O north wind, come you south Blow upon my gardens with the spices thereof that may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat of his pleasant fruits. You know, hey, wind, come and, come and attract my love. Bring my love to me and let him enjoy that love. And God, you know, I can't even picture this, but Jesus wants that kind of relationship. In Revelation, it says, Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open the door and let me in, I will come in and sup with him, dine with him. God wants to have that relationship with us. He wants to come into our life and have intimate fellowship with us. And that verse is used for a salvation birth, verse, but it really is that verse was spoken to, one, to the churches. That verse is spoken to the church. Open the door and let me come in. I'm outside knocking. Please let me come in and have intimate time with you because dining with people is an intimate experience. That's why we have fellowship times. That's why we do these things, to bring people together. Uh, that's why dining is all these date nights. People go out and usually eat on a date night because there's an intimacy in it. It's a, it's a relaxed time where you just spend talking to each other, looking at it. And it's also why it's a very dangerous place for 
for business people of the opposite sex to have a dinner meeting because it is a meeting of that has intimacy involved with it. Uh, because it is an open invitation at times to go to have things go way beyond what you were expecting, especially when you make it a habit. It's not not bad on one one time necessarily, but if you make a habit of it, you're you're asking for trouble. One, leads. one, one yeah, and one is bad, you know. But you can have that one dinner, you know, business dinner. But if you're having any attraction to that person in the first place, don't even do that. You know, because it is something that needs to be careful. And he says, you are an enclosed garden. You have these spices. And the wind that she wants is not for everybody to get hold of her. It's for her husband to catch that smell and say, I'm here. I'm drawn to you. You know, and this is very important. Christ is drawn to us. I can't understand why he's drawn to us, but he is. <laughs> not our spices, anyway. But, you know, he's drawn to us in a very special way that we can't even fathom. Maybe, maybe we'll see it when we're in heaven. I don't know. Maybe he'll show us what we look like to him when we're in heaven, and we will see it better. But from this side of heaven, I don't understand it at all. I don't understand why he's drawn to us. I don't understand why he wants, to, wants us to, you know, work with us and be drawn to us. And yet he is. So much so that he died for us. And that's something I, I struggle with. I really struggle with from this side of heaven because I don't, I don't see what he's getting out of this. You know, obviously he gets something out of it. God doesn't need anything, but you know, he gets something out of it that he says, I care about these people so much that I want to die for them. I will die for them. I will separate. Jesus said, I will go separate myself from the Father and the Holy Spirit to buy these people back so that we can be united with them. And it's like, wow, what an amazing thing he's willing to do. You know, and just God, show me more. Show me more about why you love us. Show, you know, show me more. You know, and I am starting to understand that, as, especially as I'm pastoring a group of people and I'm going, wow, see this, I'm watching this person grow and, and, and move. And I watch this person grow and move. Then there's the ones I look at and I get heartbroken because they're not growing and moving the way that I, in, in the way. And it's like, oh, man. And I start understanding a little bit, a little bit about how God sees us. When he falls in love with those that are growing, when, he, when he's heartbroken at those that reject him, when he has to send somebody to hell, which is what they've asked for by rejecting him, it's gonna, it breaks his heart because he's provided every opportunity not to go there. And that's heartbreaking when you see people reject the message. All right, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to guide and lead us. Lord, help us to really see who we are in you, that you're, you love us and that you see us so differently than we see ourselves. And we just ask you to be with us. Lord, if there's anybody that doesn't know you listening to this message, we ask that you will get hold of their heart as they confess their sin to you and repent of their sin and ask you to come into your heart and become your child. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.